Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. Happy New Year, everybody. We have a special new format we're trying this week, uh, not with just co-host Carl Bialik, but also with guest Jeff McFarland. So, Carl, thank you, as always, for joining me, and welcome back. Thanks, Jeff. And Jeff, thank you for joining us as well. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, Long-time listeners will know very well, but I should tell anyone who's new that Carl is also the uh, maker of the 30 Love Tennis Podcast, which is more of a guest interview format and a great compliment to this show. And Jeff McFarland is the proprietor of the Hidden Game of Tennis website, and he's also on Twitter at FBI Tennis. So a couple of the the biggest hitters in, in tennis analytics. And both of them suggested during the offseason that we try doing podcasts with more than two voices, and no good suggestion goes unpunished here at the Tennis Abstract Podcast. So here they both are, and I'm really excited to see if that turns out. And if you heard some squealing in the background, that would be my six-month-old son who's jealous of Jeff and Carl for their, uh, their placement on the show. So thanks, guys, both for joining me. Let's start by talking ATP Cup Carl, uh, we miss out on some good conversations, I think, about the next-gen finals format changes and the Davis Cup finals format. I mean, we've had sort of this slew of, of experimentation going on, and the ATP Cup is just the, the latest bit of that. And normally, you're on board with, with experimenting with formats, whether it's scoring formats or tournament formats, that kind of thing. I mean, has the, has the ATP Cup captured your inter- interest thus far? It has. It's a pretty low bar to capture my interest in tennis, let alone new tennis formats, let alone after weeks of an off season. So I don't know how well that translates to the the broader public that the ATP Cup is trying to appeal to. I do think it's a funny missed opportunity to experiment in that we've already watched this experiment about six weeks ago in Madrid. I mean, it's it's got differences from the new Davis Cup format, but for reasons having to do with the origins of, of each of them and kind of the parallel paths toward each of them beginning, they're kind of doing the same thing with a lot of the same players. And that definitely limits the the learning we will get from, from running this. But in the meantime, I'm enjoying it. A lot of top players, a lot of fun matches. So do you... You have you been watching some? Like, it, it, have you gotten a sense of the like the, the the crowd involvement? Maybe how that compares to the Davis Cup Finals in Madrid? Yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhat diluted by being in three different cities, quite far from each other, and also somewhat diluted from coming after Davis Cup. Like, if you had the exact same things in reverse order, maybe Davis Cup would have been somewhat sapped of interest. But Australia does have pretty solid population levels from a lot of the top contenders and that definitely helps and it's also there's a lot of tennis passion there especially this time of year there's also a lot i think much more important happening in australia right now and i'm sure that's at least somewhat a factor so yeah i don't think it's quite the davis cup atmosphere it's a little strange to be competing for your country in the context of the atp which is so focused on the individual or the doubles team um Especially, you know, we in the past had the the world team. Uh, you'll have to correct me on the name, but the one that disappeared a few years ago. Um, there, there just isn't really generally the nationalism in the ATP and the WTA that, that this is suddenly injecting. So I think it takes a little getting used to. 
It definitely does. I mean, it, that it, you're right. It's the World Team Cup, and I think we lost that around 2012 or something. That might have been the the, the last edition. Uh, I was reminded of that when I was writing a post the other day about uh, about a double bagel that Roberto Bautista Agu dealt against uh, Alexandra Metravelli of Georgia. And one of the more recent double bagels in ATP history was from the World Team Cup. Um, Yanko Tipsarevich uh, double bagel, Lavrozovko, if I remember right. Uh, so y- 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 I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you do have this weird mismatch of ability levels sometimes. And that's not something we saw too much at the Davis Cup finals because there were, there were fewer countries involved. Uh, here in Australia, there are, well, here, I'm not in Australia, but in this tournament this week, we have 24 nations. Um, the qualification wasn't based on like playing their way in. It was based on... Uh, on the the ranking of the top player, so Carl, is that a is that a plus? And do you like the having the format with more teams and some more like out of the way players? So far, for novelty, I do. I don't know if I would in the seventh edition of it. I <laughs> I, I think the the qualification rule of the top player singles ranking determining which countries qualify probably had an even bigger effect than the greater field size. Although I guess that's an empirical question. But, you know, it certainly leads to these like one hit wonder countries being in the tournament. And that is great if you're optimizing for individual star power. And given that there are only three matches and your star can play in two of them, it makes some sense in terms of country strength, as well as just in terms of tournament strength and attracting in attracting fans. I also in, in kind of one offs in important matches, having somebody ranked in the 500s or even below going up against the top player can bring some drama. And we've seen that in Davis cup over the years and also kind of remind us of the depth of tennis talent and how little can separate two players, at least in a single match, especially in best of three. So I think occasionally it's been entertaining to see these guys step up. We have seen a lot of one-sided matches. I think it also helps that there isn't the reverse singles format. So we're not seeing them go up against, let's say Djokovic and Nadal so far. Yeah, that would, that, that would be a pretty dramatic change of, um, change of orders. If you ended up with, with somebody like Dimitar Kuzminov or Alexander Kozminov of Moldova as the number one player facing Djokovic and Nadal, but I guess they'll be, they'll be out pretty soon. Um, presumably none of these countries are going to qualify. Uh, so Jeff, I want to bring you in here as well. Um, thinking about the format at this point, one of the one of the big appeals I think to players is you have the opportunity to to have a few guaranteed matches, and that means that a lot of top players have shown up for this instead of Doha. Doha has a pretty weak field this week um, compared to past years. Uh, do you think that's a that's a positive for fans to have an opportunity to see you know Nadal Djokovic in competitive matches three times the first week versus the risk of having a top player like say Stan Wawrinka who's playing Doha crashing out um, earlier in the first week and just seeing that one match the first day of the season? I mean, is, is there a? I, mean, I guess what what I want to get at is is this better for fans even if the format's weird, unfamiliar, random, eight hundredth ranked players like? Should we be enjoying this more than than the old fashioned Doha Brisbane Pune three way? Uh, well, I I think so. But uh, you know, one of the things that ATP 
Peacup is facing this time that it won't face in perpetuity is just the political run-up and the the controversy that was happening with Davis Cup and and this and competition and uh, that's not going to be there forever. So some of the negative feeling that I, you know I see on Twitter about ATP Cup is more disappointment about what's happened to Davis Cup and you know I think you pointed out uh, in in a tweet in response to someone else's tweet that uh, was talking about um, Stakovsky's. Uh, sort of insider intel on this. And it, it looks like to me that Davis Cup was going to die in the format that it was no matter what happened. So I haven't thought of this as blaming ATP Cup for that. I see ATP Cup as a you know replacement for Brisbane or whatever. But I, I do think that it doesn't make any sense to have Doha this week. There's way too much tennis uh, going on at ATP Cup. I, I can barely, I, I couldn't name three players in Doha, and you've already named one of them. And normally that's something that I would pay more attention to. Not to mention we've got three women's events going on this week, I think. Uh, yeah. It's it's a little bit too much tennis, I think, uh, for for the first week. And it is a, a bit distracting. But really, to me, that's to the detriment of the other tournaments. Uh, ATP Cup, at least for now, I think is dominating all the tennis conversation, uh, which is probably good for them. Uh, and because that's where all the top players are also because it's new uh people want to either love it or hate it they may be trying to love it they may be trying to ignore it uh, i i like it uh, i think i i think some of the features the innovations as you said i don't know how innovative they are but i think some of them have been underutilized and it may be because i'm getting it through tennis channel and and people may be getting it through tennis tv or or whatever but i'm not getting any of the conversations among the coaches i'm not seeing any uh strategy discussions some of the matches i've watched are not even mic'd over there so it's only what's being picked up on the on the general field mic so for me that's a little bit lost i was i was looking forward to that because i do think it's kind of cool to have those little booths on the side of the court with the teams over there and you know i can see like i was watching uh australia uh, i was watching the millman match uh against um Aliassime. And you could see uh, Leighton Hewitt's little screen there where, you know, all the data he wanted would be there. And he did not look at it one time. So I was ho- ho- hoping for a little bit more of that. Yeah. And w- one thing that I think this came up in my in the episode that I, I did with Eric Johnson uh, a couple months ago. We were talking about the fact that often these conversations with players are uh, – in a native language and pretty obviously i mean a swedish player is more likely to have a swedish coach and if they're talking to each other they'll talk to each other in swedish or there's the weird case of alex de Menor and his spanish-speaking coach who speaks to him in spanish and alex replies in uh, i was about to say australian alex replies in english um not the case with hewitt obviously but it, it is going to be pretty common in a national competition that you will have these conversations happening to the extent they happen and are of interest in languages other than English. And unless you have a translator on hand, that's not going to do much for us. I mean, certainly not for English speakers, but whether you're listening in Spain or France or wherever, it's got to be translated to your native language. And some of the more interesting things I've picked up, which granted is a pretty short list, are ones that uh, that someone on Twitter has translated. So for instance, uh, someone on Twitter, the, the Twitter user Anna K forever, uh, has, has translated a lot of Ukrainian and Russian stuff. Uh, he's responsible for, for translating the, the Stakovsky comments you mentioned earlier, Jeff. 
um, he, he, he passed on something that Safin said during the Kachanov's match against the U.S. I think Kachanov was playing Taylor Fritz. And Safin said that all these American guys are the same. They go for the shock and awe, try to beat with one or two big shots. After that, they're clueless. I'm paraphrasing. That's probably not quite right. He probably didn't use the Russian equivalent of the word clueless. But, um, I mean, that's, that's, that's an interesting claim. I mean, it, and it's funny, but it's also testable. Uh, I don't think we're getting even a large percentage of, of what's there. And it seems like there's a, a lot of potential there to give fans some interesting material to work with. I mean, obviously for statisticians, we love to have testable stuff, but uh, just, just more talking points. And a lot of those don't come out because they are happening in languages uh, other than English, which is, is a drawback there. Um, so Jeff, you mentioned you saw what was on Hewitt's screen and I know you've done some work with the ATP second screen stats. I mean, do you have a sense of, of what they have, uh, or what they could do with it if they, if they did take advantage of the stats at their disposal? Well, yeah. And, and I didn't want to, I saw that he had the screen. I didn't see what was on the screen, but I'm assuming that they have access to, uh, at least at a minimum, the same second screen that, that we would have access to, maybe more, but I, I'm, I'm guessing probably not. Uh, I think the most useful thing in match would be the serve placement data on, you know, if there's somebody has a tendency on the deuce or the ad side. There are a lot of things that are in second screen that I, I think you could probably use pre-match uh, preparation, but be a lot harder to do. Uh, or maybe you wouldn't need the stats for that if you were, uh, you know, for instance, uh, uh, the re- where the person is standing to return. You can you can visualize that. I mean, uh, you don't need the second screen data to tell you that it's one inch more or something. Uh, so I, I think it's mostly the serve data that would come in handy uh, for that. I haven't, again, I haven't by any means watched a majority of the matches at the ATP Cup, but I haven't really seen any of that happening uh, it's an interesting observation from from Saf, and I'm sure he was just making that observation off the top of his head and not based on the data. But that data would be there uh, for them if they wanted to, uh, you know, to, to try to put some numbers to it. So, uh, I, I to me, it's the it's the serve data. Uh, there isn't a lot of as of yet uh, return data uh, in terms of uh, placement, uh, which I think. You know, you're you're more or less looking for tendencies live in in match that you might not notice because uh, you're in the rush of it all. Uh, so to me, that that would be the most uh, most useful part of the of the second screen data. But I would love to hear how uh, coaches look at it because you're also uh, early in a match. You've got very small sample sizes, and just because the, the guys hitting all the serves down the tee on the two side for the first three service games doesn't really mean. Uh, anything for the rest unless you've seen something like that in your pre-match uh, preparation that that's just where he goes uh, and so it, it would be easy I would think early in a match for coaches to also make mistakes uh, and 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 send players thoughts maybe in the wrong direction based on small sample sizes because most of these people except for like the Slovenian Davis Cup coach I guess uh, are probably not uh, well versed in exactly how to use those stats I'd be really interested in finding enough cases where we can try to trace this all the way through. Because as you just mentioned, sometimes the coach might just be wrong. They might be talking off the cuff and might be wrong about what they're observing. Sometimes the coach might be right, 
but the uh, suggestion of how to counter what they're seeing that the player might not be seeing might be a bad suggestion. Sometimes the player might not follow the suggestion. Sometimes the player follows the suggestion, but doesn't actually seem to help. And then, you know, if this gets advanced enough or if players are really observant, if, if I was trying something different that I didn't think my play, my opponent would expect about me, and then I see the coach uh, huddling with the player and pointing something out that the coach would know about because of the stats, maybe I'll change that, that tactic because now the opponent will know about it. So there, it, it would be very hard from one match to say anything meaningful about all that. Maybe our listeners and people like them uh, who aren't listening to the show could get together on some kind of a hashtag that would identify, okay, we're now, you know, defining a moment in a match where a coach has said something testable in all the, in all the ways I just outlined. And then maybe we could get some, some more insight into how this is playing out. I mean, the example we've talked about in the show before is with Caroline Wozniacki's serve direction tendencies. And if, if there was something like that, where it was as simple as, Hey, every time, on the third point, she's going in this direction. And then we could check if that's indeed been the case. And we could check if indeed um, that stops being as effective and if the player keeps doing it anyway. I mean, that would be a fun case study of of the effect coaching can have here with stats. And what we really need is is random randomized controlled trials here. I made a joke in one of my recent posts about this, that the tennis is not exactly that, or it's very far from that. And as as you both have just described, it would take a lot of effort to, to to identify the situations where players are trying something, and that would just those would all just be one offs. So my my big idea, which is I mean, eighty percent joking, but maybe more, maybe ninety six percent joking, is we have all these players at the futures level who aren't making enough money to get by. Some of them are turning to match fixing because they need to make money from different sources. Why don't we get grant money to run randomized control trials with those players and thus funding their careers? But we get to tell them sometimes what to do. Like you have to run around the backhand. You have to serve to the ad court. Then we can really answer these questions. Otherwise, we're going to be really struggling to get very much data to work with. Yeah, I was I just popped over to the second screen for uh, the Lloyd Harris, uh, Nicholas Jerry uh, match just to see what was here. And, you know, it was interesting as though I was I was doing it. I was sort of imagining myself sitting uh, courtside while I had a player who I was had a vested interest in playing. And there are some return placement numbers uh, or and, and graphics. And there's a different ways to slice it and dice it, deuce and add first serve, second serve. Uh, but even while I was just listening to you talk, and again, I'm not, uh, you're not playing tennis. I'm not in charge of giving you advice on how to do what you're doing. Uh, I found it a little bit difficult to process in real time, like these return placement numbers. It's great that, you know, 80% of them have gone in the middle and 20% have gone deep, although that's, you know, it looks to be about seven shots, but that tells me nothing about the serve from whence it came. Right, so it doesn't mean the guy likes to hit all his serves in the middle. I mean, his returns in the middle. Maybe that's just all he could do on a particular serve. It's really hard to process that in real time, courtside. It would require you to click on a number of screens, put, make a lot of connections, all of which would distract from you actually watching what the player is doing. It it isn't to me coach intuitive at this point. Uh, it's it's got to evolve at some point. 
And it, it's so hard to know what what you could even do with it, that information. I mean, that, that, Carl mentioned earlier the the weird Wozniacki stuff we talked about almost a year ago now that she always go, goes the same sequence of serve directions for the first four points of a game, but it doesn't really seem to affect how her opponents return that much. So if someone's almost 100% predictable and it still doesn't affect the outcome of the points or the outcome of the game, then even if you are recognizing all these tendencies from uh, from second screen stats or whatever else you pick up, like even if you recognize the tendencies, even if you tell your player about the tendencies, it doesn't mean they can, they're can. they guaranteed to hit a backhand or they can camp out in a certain part of the court. All it means is it's 70-30 or even 90-10 in the case of Wozniacki, which might not be good enough. I don't know. Well, it may matter more for, say, men's serves, uh, where you don't have as much reaction time, so that little extra you know, lean to the right uh, because he always goes down to down the tee on the ad court might be more useful than than in Wozniacki's serve where you're probably going to catch up to it even if you guess wrong. One, one thought I had to your your point, you being here hidden game of tennis, Jeff, of you know what do you what do you do with this information? Returns are coming down the middle. Is that actually a tactic or just the best the player could do off big serves? I my recollection of what IBM gives players and has given players for years at slams is that they could with one click watch every return for uh, of first serves out wide in the ad court let's say uh, and this would be after the match but presumably you could also with the stats that are tagging all these shots create sort of on the fly automatically create clips that that show that to coaches. So if, if I see that stat and then tap something and then see in about 30 seconds, all of those returns, then maybe I can, with my incredible tennis brain that, that these algorithms don't have, uh, process that and say, oh, there's nothing here or there's something I should mention on the next changeover, um, or I guess right now. Is that is that available now? And if not, is that feasible, do you think? I think it's feasible. Um, I don't think it's part of the the whole second screen suite of whatever the ATP is doing. Um, but yeah, the, the IBM does that. I think that people who tag matches in Dartfish get some of those benefits. Like if, you, if you manually tag the match that way, then you can go back and, and get the video clips, maybe not quite as seamlessly as you're talking about with IBM. Or I think PlaySight has something similar. Um, so, I mean, it, technologically, I don't think it's, it, it, it's even cutting edge anymore if you, if you look to other sports that are using more video. Uh, but then you wonder when exactly are coaches doing that? I mean, to, to Jeff's point, presumably the coach is also trying to watch everything on court. When nothing's happening on court, then maybe he's talking to his player. So it sounds like you're proposing that he's going to go through those brief video clips at some point and decide whether there's something to tell his player. I'm not sure when that happens in match. Maybe it's good pre-match stuff, and presumably some coaches and players are doing a lot of that um, between matches or in preparation for matches. Uh, but that's pretty far from what I think is happening in the ATP Cup. So, Well, I think but we, Jeff, we, I think what I would want to see is like the, the marriage of the two. So the stats tell me as a coach, here's a flag. And then I process that flag relative to what I've seen and think, 
yeah, that's not worth looking into further. That's not actually what's going on. Or, oh, you know, that does resonate. It's worth the minute during a changeover to watch that clip. So I, I guess the stats guide you to what is worth the second of distraction and, and what you won't even look at because it's just exactly in line. So the, the stats are pro- or the, the program, let's say, is proposing... It's, it's sort of like offering an automated insight and then the coach is deciding, okay, that insight is worth showing to my player and then you use the changeover to show the clips to your player. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I mean, I'm saying there might be a step in between where the program's saying, hey, it's worth watching this 30-second video clip I made. And then if you think it's meaningful, either showing it to the player or just distilling the insight you get from the stat and the video and your own brain and prior knowledge of these two players. Uh, into a 10-second tip to the player. I mean, what, what it sounds like we really need is a, a fourth, I don't know how I got to four, but another person in the mix who is the sort of assistant coach slash video editor who's making that call. So like towards the end of a game, the video editor is deciding like these things are important. Safin will want to show this to Kachanov and it's ready so that Safin and Kachanov can watch it together on the changeover. Um, that's, so, exactly, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking is you need a quant. It's going to be Leighton Hewitt and then like a 25-year-old guy from Wharton. I thought you said a quant. I did. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, wow. We're all much older than that, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, you weren't insulting Wharton there. Okay. Oh, I was. No, no, I, I was. I'm, 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 going for, I'm going for double the humor. I'm not sure if that's the right word here, but... Yeah, I I think that's right. And I don't think these countries would have a hard time finding someone who'd be like a, a data intern. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned Miha Lakar from Slovenia, uh, Jeff, the, the Slovenian Davis Cup coach. He's already doing some of this stuff on his own. So maybe he'd be his own assistant or maybe he already has an assistant. Uh, but well, Tennis Australia has uh, a group already that's, you know, top notch uh, in that regard. Just have those folks have Stephanie or somebody court, courtside. I, I love the idea of making jobs for tennis quants, don't get me wrong, but I don't understand why Safin or Hewitt couldn't process on their own an alert from a program saying, hey, you know, the opponent's second serve win percentage is way higher than we projected. Do you want to watch? It looks like that's mainly because of the ad court. Do you want to watch a quick set of clips of what's going on there? I, I just think, like, it wouldn't take much to to figure out how to flag what the outliers are, uh, what the points of interest are, and and give that initial filter and let video plus all-time great tennis brain do the rest. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to d- disparage the all-time great tennis brains. It just seems like you're asking them to do a lot in addition to what coaches already do, which is pretty much stare at their player the whole time. <laughs> so I They mean, have I players on the bench to do that. They've got the cheer, cheering squad. They've got – those are the numbers three through five. That's true. I mean, and, uh, yeah, and maybe, maybe there is a way for this to work. I just – I feel like if, if you're – if you pitch this to Leighton Hewitt, he's going to say, when am I doing this? Like, I want to be watching my player until he sits down in his chair, and then I want to start telling him stuff or showing him stuff or whatever. I I don't have 30 seconds to decide what to show him. And if, if, if I can have Stephanie sitting behind me and handing me an iPad with exactly the right things to show him, then that's a huge win. Because then I'm, I'm focused on my player 100% of the time. But... I mean, 
I'm trying to get inside the head of Merritt Safin here, and that's guaranteed to go wrong. <laughs> well, in any AI that you have, uh, you know, I could see that. Uh, I can actually see that better in a, a Davis Cup format, in which you know every large tennis organization for a country comes up with its own sort of AI suggestions of when to look at the video, when to when this might be important. I, I have a hard time seeing the ATP doing that. Uh, system wide, because then everybody has is getting the same suggestions um, or the same the same logarithms. I mean, algorithms for I said logarithms, algorithms for uh, for those adjustments. And then it seems like it becomes more of a chess game than it does a, a a game on court. And I think fans are very sensitive about already about players solving their own problems on the court. I, I'm not sure how. Uh, a system-wide AI would go over uh, with the fan base. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I kind of like the idea of having a, a, a person there to assist. I don't know how I feel about uh, having the AI do it for me. Well, I think, I mean, you're you're responding to something I'm definitely not suggesting, although I was mainly not suggesting it because I don't think it's even close to possible yet. I wasn't right. saying the AI would say what to do. It would say what to look at and decide what to do based on. Yeah, that, we're definitely far away from it being fully automated, which isn't to say that it's not going to be featured at the 2020 Next Gen Finals. I think we could have fully automated AI coaching. And the in, robot in, voice would shout out and say, hit to his back end. <laughs> yeah, it, and, and confusingly, it would be the same voice as the uh, the line judges. So they'd have to work that out before 2021. But, you know, it's a it's an ongoing process. Um, so we could easily talk about this for the second half of the show as well as the first half of the show, but I, I, I do have a lot of other things I want to touch on. I think we might come back to ATP Cup a little bit, but I have a very specific question I want to ask for. I want to get both of your gut feelings on this because I, I have sort of a, a, a hacky way of solving this question. Um, it's probably wrong, but I want to know what your gut feelings are. So being here in... In Norway, I'm following Kasper Ruud pretty closely, and Kasper has got two big wins so far this week, one over Fanini and one over John Isner. I was really surprised by the Isner win. I didn't think Ruud really had a chance over Isner on hard courts. But um, keeping in line with Tennis Abstract podcast history, where we say we don't want to talk about John Isner and then talk about John Isner for a long time, let's talk about John Isner. He lost this close match to Kasper Ruud, which in case you guys don't know, um, went to three sets. Isner won 47% of the points. And Kasper Ruud is not a very good hardcore player, not even top 50 ELO, regardless of surface. And then Isner came back two days later, played Daniel Medvedev, um, and lost a lopsided match. I think it was 3-1 or something. Isner won only 38% of the points. And Medvedev, of course, is one of the best players on tour, especially on hard courts. So my question to both of you is, which performance was better? a close loss to the weaker Kasper Ruud or a lopsided loss to the much stronger Daniel Medvedev? I'll take the risk of going first. I don't know if this counts as cheating to look beyond the score at the match stats, but I reject the characterization that one was much closer than the other because Isner just couldn't return the Ruud serve. So he was never really in those return games. And against against Medvedev, he, it was a little bit closer so given that Medvedev is a much tougher opponent, I think the rude match is much more um, much more troubling for Isner. And Jeff, what do you think? Well, I agree with that. I didn't see 
much of the Medvedev match, but uh, Isner in the rude match, it, he was not himself. I, you know, I was I was thinking a couple of weeks ago. I was looking at some other other data, and you know, Isner is a very consistent player, and and I understand why people are not excited by his game style. But this is not a guy who loses first round in most tournaments, uh, which is what you say about most you know top ten players, and and that's been true for a long time. Uh, but and and he is a and I haven't I haven't researched this, but my memory tells me that he's a bit of a slow starter at the beginning of the season. But this was, uh, you know, he can always fall back on the serve. I I don't feel like he served very well, and everything else was an utter disaster. Uh, he just looked like a I mean, for lack of a better word, dinosaur out, out there. Which I, you know, for for all his faults. Uh, I don't think I've ever felt like he was just overmatched before. And in the Medvedev match, he just looked like he, he didn't even belong with him. And in the Rude match, he just looked like he didn't know what he was doing, didn't want to be there. I, it's a very strange uh, performance for him, for, for him. I didn't see any energy. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's jet lag. Uh, but he, he did not look like himself. So I agree with Carl that I'm more troubled by the Rude loss than by Medvedev, who's probably going to beat him anyway. I, and he hasn't, partic- whatever himself is, the level he's kind of been at for quite a while as a really competitive player, he hasn't been quite there, just looking quickly at the match results, since um, reaching the Miami final last year and then getting injured and missing some time. So maybe this is just more stronger, harsher evidence that he's not what he was a year ago. Okay, so as I as I sort of teased, I, I have an answer to this. I, I don't think it's a final answer by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm curious what you guys think of the approach. So I wrote this post about a week ago um, using, using binomial distributions to look at match stats and say, like, this is how likely the winner was to win. So, you know, if, if you've got a match where it's a third set tie break, one guy wins 50.5% of points, then yeah, he was slightly more likely to win, but not very much more likely. But if somebody wins three and one, like Medvedev did, he almost definitely was the winner. And if you want to use margin of, of victory in a forecasting engine, it seems like that would be a logical way of going about it to, to convert the uh, the number of points won or the rate of points won to sort of a probability of victory. Because just because you win a match doesn't mean you were were guaranteed to win the match playing the way you were. There's the, you can look at it a more sophisticated way. So what I did was I, I worked out those percentages for these two matches. So using the the 47% of total total points won against Casper Ruud, that's about a 77% chance of, of losing. I guess a 77% chance for, for Casper to win the match. And then the Isner loss to Medvedev, he, went, he won 38% of points. That's almost a 99% chance that Isner's going to lose. Medvedev's going to win that match. And then what we can do with those two numbers is say, how good of a player would have that percentage chance of beating someone as good as those guys? So Medvedev, his hardcore ELO is 2027. How good a player has a 99% chance of losing to Daniel Medvedev? And it turns out the answer to that is a guy with an ELO of 1250. And if you do the same calculation for Casper, uh, 77% chance of losing to Casper with his 1667 ELO, that guy has an ELO of 1,458. So the Casper loss in that sense is a lot better, which is you know, directly uh, 
opposite to what you both just said. So I know I'm just springing you on, uh, springing this on you now, but I mean, based on what I just laid out, using the player's elo, using the sort of probability of winning the matches, uh, based on the points won in the match. I mean, is there something wrong with that? Is there some part of that process you disagree with? Um, is there a way you'd reconcile that answer with your gut feelings that went in the opposite direction? I raised, when you wrote that post, this question of like serve points and return points. And it's much easier to raise a question than to figure out how to address it. And I understand there isn't a simple way to do it. Um, I do... You know, I am wondering basically how to take into account the fact that Isner played the majority of points against Rude on his serve. Um, I don't know the percentage right now, but it, it looks like a lot more than 50 and then played slightly fewer than 50 against Medvedev. So I think the 47 and 38 doesn't capture the one-sidedness of those two matches. Um as well as something that would account for like the mix of serve and return points for someone as serve dominant as Isner. But I, I still, you know, I think there with the gap as big as you described, that wouldn't account for all of it. So that definitely, you know, I'm, I'm persuaded it's, it's counter to my intuition um, and maybe says something about the perceived versus real gap between Medvedev and Rude as opponents. I mean, it sounds like a 600, point difference in ELO or something would, would be enormous, but uh, not enough to account for such a big difference in scores. Well, and I guess, Jeff, this is a question for you. Uh, it, 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 does the binomial probability just assume all of, all of, all other things are equal? I mean, so we're assuming everything is 50-50, right? That's, that's the baseline? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it skips over a lot of the messiness in tennis of the difference between serve and return points. So Carl's point is absolutely valid. Um, but also not the just in, the... not just in the fact that it, it, it that my numbers don't take into account the weight, but simply the fact that like tennis points aren't fifty fifty. <laughs> it's just not the way it works, especially for someone like Isner. Well, and 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 so this is this is the root of my question is is that if Isner was just more off personally say and or his game in in his match against rude versus his match against uh medvedev uh i mean you know over so over a two match uh measurement i i I don't know if i i'm not saying that i don't believe the numbers and i'm certainly not uh trusting my intuition over anything you've researched uh but uh, i could see how there there are some subtleties that would be missed by the by the all other things are equal assumption uh, when uh, you've got uh, Isner and who, who may be in different condition in the two scenarios and has a completely different kind of opponent. Yeah, and it, it, I'm, I'm not sure how much weight to put on these numbers because what, what essentially what these are going to say is if if you get blown out by someone, pretty much regardless of how good they are it's going to make you look really, really bad. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's it's Medvedev or Rude. If if, if you if you lose sixty percent of total points, then my binomial method is gonna t- is gonna say you had a ninety nine percent chance or whatever of losing. 
work that into the ELO formula and in, it's going to come out with you having an ELO that day of 1100 or 1200 or something, which is, is so bad as to be pretty much meaningless for a tour level player. So a blowout is always going to look worse. I guess the, the question that is going to rely more on maybe more on intuition or more research or something is, is a blowout always worse? And, and, and Carl, it sounds like one of the things you're saying here is, it, it's not that simple. The, the Medvedev match wasn't maybe as much of a blowout as it looked like. The Rude match was not as close as it sounded. So maybe even some of the, the assumptions I'm using here are, are wrong, in addition to the methodology being not fully fleshed out. But I want to just raise that issue to, to get it out there and, and maybe prompt us to do a little more work in that direction. Because one thing that I've always always wanted to have is sort of a, a one-number summary of every match. And we've made a lot of progress getting a one number summary not adjusted for opponent we've got dominance ratio i adjusted dominance ratio for leverage we have a lot of ways of just saying this is how well this guy played in this match but we don't have a good way of converting that into one number that says taking into account the quality of the opponent this is how good the guy played that day i mean you can you can easily think of a lot of ways of directions to go from there just doing like a a, a time series of, of how players performed from one day to the next using these different numbers. So, I mean, there's a ton of potential there. I just wanted to get us moving in that direction. And I would, I mean, again, I'm better at injecting complication than resolving it, but the we, when we talk about opponent quality, even there, of course, we're talking about some kind of tendency or average level. And probably the simplest real explanation for what's happening with a, a surprising result like this is that the player who won played better than his usual level and the player who lost played worse but figuring out how to actually divvy up the gap is not obvious to me like against Medvedev you could say well so Medvedev probably was better than his level if he blew out Isner to that extent um, Isner was worse maybe Typically, when there's a blowout, it's more about the losing player, especially when the winning player already is being considered to be really good. So there's only so much room to to add to that. Um, maybe you could use some sort of second level stats like winners to, to get at that. So maybe some some combination of using match charting stats combined with like uh, margin could give you some kind of estimate of the, the connection between um, match performance, match stats, and like match level, but but anyway, th that's just to point out here that I don't think you're literally saying that that's how poorly Isner was playing. You're saying if Isner was indeed playing the best estimate we have of Medvedev's level, that's how poorly he was playing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it, all these things are kind of saying, given if all the information we had was the op uh, the opponent's rating and the performance that day this is the estimate we'd make that's that's it and and you're absolutely right that if you know any little bit more about the player or you make any estimate about the nature of matches on tour or players varying their level from one day to the next you're going to tweak that and probably away from the extremes i mean almost always away from the extremes and what i imagine would happen if if you do create the kind of time series i'm talking about you're going to say you know match one, 1450, match two, 1250, match three, 1670, match four, he upsets Djokovic and it's 3,100. I mean, it, it, the numbers are going to be all over the place and you're probably going to 
want to massively regress them to the mean because otherwise you are just going to have outliers in both directions. I still think there's something valuable there, even with a huge amount of regression, but that's an important step. Yeah. A couple of years ago, uh, or maybe it wasn't two years ago, I can't lose track of time, but I tried to put together these uh, toy stats. One was called, uh, I think I call it com for like command and one for loss. It's LOS. It was, uh, just a, a stab at trying to figure out whether the person who won was in command of the match or whether the person who lost sort of lost it themselves uh, by a, an undue number of unforced errors versus what their opponents were doing. Um, and, and so what, what Carl mentioned just made, made me think of that. I did want to say one more thing about that Isner-Rude match. It was um, pretty much crowd-dead. Uh, it was one of the ones where I, I had a hard time watching to the end because the only energy you got was from Rude's bench. There was nothing on the American bench. There was nothing in the crowd. That was one of those weird things where you kind of wondered whether the AT, ATP Cup was going to work. Uh, because, I mean, Isner's a, uh, you, I guess you could call him a tennis star. He's a, he's a top player and has been for a long time, but he doesn't uh, command an audience. And then he had kind of this uh, this new kid, new to most people, I think, playing. And it was a, a very odd uh, match to watch. It was sort of tense, not particularly well played, and not, frankly, very exciting, even though it was, you know, sort of nominally close. Lots to think about there on the, the ATP Cup. We'll come back to this probably in next week's episode. But now that we were 45 minutes into this episode, we absolutely have to talk some WTA. Um Let's start with the basics here. We haven't seen very much WTA tennis except for a big win from Arena Sabalenka today. Uh, many of the top players, if not quite all, are in action this week in Shenzhen and Brisbane and Auckland. I want to start just talking about the two biggest names in the WTA last year, Ashley Barty and Bianca Andreescu. Um, Barty is number one by a pretty hefty margin. Andreescu is the rising star who seems to be the most likely to dethrone her. I mean, what do you think, Carl? Is is Barty your 2020 year-end number one as well? Yeah, but with under 50% probability. So 47%? <laughs> I was hoping to keep that open. It's an interesting question of what, how confident we can be. I mean, they're all starting from zero. I, I would in the 20s, I don't know, 25%. Jeff, what do you think? Uh, well, uh, on Andreescu, I think I have to, we have to see more of her. I mean, she looks great, but we do have, I mean, how many matches has she even played on clay? And maybe, and, you know, and I guess you don't have to. I guess you could come close to number one with a, a few wins on clay. Uh, but, but, but she's played what, maybe two, three main draw matches. I, I bet she hasn't played more than two top 100 players on, on clay in a main draw. Um, so it's pretty hard for me to put my money behind, uh, Andreescu as the year end number one until I see a little bit more, uh, from her. Uh, I actually have a sleeper pick, uh, which is also my sleeper pick for the, for a, a slam winner. And that's, uh, Carolina Pliskova. Uh, I thought that uh, the last couple matches I saw her at the end of 2019, uh, she was moving like a regular person, and uh, and and looked uh, so much better. I, I think I think she made a lot of progress in uh, 2019. I think she has a, a really good mindset to accomplish those things. So I, I think she's a real challenger uh, for either of those. 
You're saying the number two player has a shot? <laughs> well, well, but in she's, Elo, a, she's she's a waste on the list. She Far is number two. Yeah, what what do you have her in Elo seven or something? Five overall. I'm not looking. Okay, so five. But she's also one of the few people who who are the others in the five. Andreescu, Osaka, Halep. Right. So she's the only non-slam winner, right? And and you're not going to finish one uh, unless you're Wozniacki, uh, uh, without a slam. Uh, I don't think these days. Uh, you have to play a lot of tennis uh, for that. So I, I still think she's kind of a sleeper. I don't think people. I don't think she leaps to uh, the front of people's minds when they think who's going to be number one at the end of the year. I think she tends to get a little bit lost in the shuffle. But I, I think I think she may do it. And we maybe we're just a little fatigued with the ongoing Plushkova optimism. People have been talking about her as the one who's going to break through for I don't know four years now, maybe that long. Um, I do see sticking with the Elos that she reached her career peak at Wimbledon last year in the uh, 2071. And that's not that far off from where Ashley Barty is now. I mean, I was, I was going to go a different direction with the Elos that Barty actually has a pretty big gap on a lot of the other players. Um, she's 129 points ahead of Andreescu. And then there's a, a lot of players clumped together, but Something that came up in a lot of episodes over the last year with Carl and I was that the ELO rankings didn't really tell you that much. I mean, it, it allowed you to separate the top maybe six from the next six, but there wasn't much of a gap among the top six. Now it's Barty and then sort of the second six or the second, I don't know, the second 20. It's uh, it, it gets pretty tight pretty fast. But um, that is one case for Barty having a, a, a pretty big head start even if that doesn't really uh, help you in the the points race since as you say carl you're starting from zero so jeff you mentioned plishkova as, as your dark horse or your pick to to be a first time slam winner carl do you have any any thoughts on who your most likely new slam winner is well i was i was giving hidden game of tennis jeff a little bit of grief just because he got he went first and said the same person I was going to. So yeah, I mean, she's kind of from that point of view, not the number one question. She is the clear pick to me. Um, Svitolina maybe being another candidate. I, I was interested scrolling through the, the ELO ratings. I mean, you've got some other contenders, of course, like Sabalenka. We've talked about once or twice on this show, Mertens, Burton's Benchich, but I was I was interested to see Peterson at number nine. Uh, do you? I haven't seen that much of her. Do you? Either of you think of her as the ninth best women's player? See her as a significant contender for a slam this year? Definitely not. No. That's something that I think I've mentioned on the show before, maybe several times. That I that Elo overreacts to long winning streaks, kind of regardless of competition level, and you normally don't see it this extreme as it was with with Pedersen but she she played a couple of internationals in, in China to end the year um so she uh, she in Nanchang she won that uh she knocked out Simona Halep which was good for a lot of points she won Tianjin to close the season so she didn't lose a lot of matches to to finish off her 2019 season she didn't beat a lot of good players except for for Halep and I see she beat she beat Venus Williams in the first round in Tianjin as well but um 
But I think it's the winning streak talking. And then maybe based on a strong finish like that, maybe she deserves to be the edge of the top 20, maybe. But I, I think that's about as high as I'd go. And Jeff, it sounds like you're with me there. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and I didn't mean to preempt uh, Carl's uh, pick there. It just blended in with my number one pick. But I do have a question for Carl, and that is, do, would you, I, I don't know, when I saw, you know, Jeff sent some show notes around. So I wrote down two names uh, next to first-time slam winner, and the first one that came to mind was Pliskova, and there was a little bit of a gap. And then I, I came up with another name. But I was wondering what you guys might think about um, Coco Goff. I mean, she was the first name that came to mind just because it would be it would be funny to name her. Um, not funny, not in that it's a bad pick, but just that it would. I think it's a year, two years too soon, maybe. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, she did well at the U.S. Open and at Wimbledon. She's probably in the top 10 or something in wins at those the, the last two slams, which is a, probably a decent way to start building your contender list. Um, I think there's just enough gaps in her game now that I would have trouble seeing her beating one or two or three top women from her current ranking to to do it. She's not going to get to play in, in that many tournaments, at least right off the bat this year. So I wouldn't put her probably in my top five, maybe not even top ten to be the next first-time slam winner, but I expect her to rise up that list quickly for me. And just this is probably says more about me than it does about Goff. But when you said when you said Coco Jeff, my first thought was Coco Vandeweghe, and I thought that was really a bold pick at this stage. Um, although she does have the the Slam semifinals in her past. Yeah, I, I'm not going. I'm not going that far. But I, what I what I remember it is when I was looking at the list of um, Elo player or top Elo players on the women's side who didn't have a slam, the list gets pretty thin pretty quick. I mean, it, in, in fact, I mean, even, even if you don't stop it, Rebecca Pedersen. Um, so that's, that's why golf came to mind is that there, there's nobody there that screams to me that they're going to be the first time slam winner. Uh, except, you know, obviously Svitolina always has a chance and, and Pliskova does too. And then after that, yeah, I thought, well, I, I felt like Goff had as good a chance as anyone else. I mean, even among Americans, I would put Kennan and Keys for this year pretty firmly ahead of her. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that seems reasonable. But also, I mean, a lot of these players, we must be talking about pretty small percentages. And the... The variation for Goff is so great. Then, I mean, she could she could win the Australian Open and make us look stupid for doubting her, or she could win a grand total of one Slam match for the entire year and make us look silly for talking about her. I mean, really, anything's possible at this stage. Yeah, if she wins, I'm going to pretend I was more definitive about this than I am. <laughs> Let's record an alternate version. We'll just sub that in. I, two other, while we're three Americans talking about Americans, a uh, couple of other names, and, and Jeff of Tennis Abstract's point about just small percentages and variance being a plus here. I mean, Allison Risk at Wimbledon is a legitimate contender, and you know Danielle Collins, when she's good, is really good. Except she's not usually that good. Right, but it just takes, you know, one Australian Open. She had a pretty good one last year. I'm I'm really disappointed you, you start listing these long-shot American names, and I have not heard Lauren Davis's name mentioned yet. I mean, it's, it's we should be talking about Lauren Davis. I'm, well, I'm that's, so frustrated uh, I just hit my hand on my table here. Yeah, that's that's 
always true. And we haven't talked about CeCe Bellis, who's going to be back. Katie McNally. She is back. What did you say, Carl? Katie McNally. Okay. So we're, we're really, really going for the deep cuts here. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to see how CeCe Bellis comes back. I think she played her first match in Auckland already. Maybe she lost. I haven't quite caught up with all the results overnight. Um, last topic, since we're, we're quickly running out of time on our hour here, but we are now witnessing the retirement tour of Caroline Wozniacki. Um, she's in Auckland this week playing doubles, just won her doubles match with Serena Williams today. Um, where do you guys think Wozniacki stands? Like she, she finally got her, her, her slam. Uh, she had the long stretch as a number one player. So I mean, in the open era, it, is she a top 10 player? If not, how high would you put her? I know it's a tough question. Jeff, I'll let you go first. Well, um, no, she is not a top 10 player. Uh, she is a, a very good player. I would say 15 or 20, uh, but I'm going to look at something real quick before I finish that. No, I'm going to say 28. 28th best in the open era. Carl, what is what is your thought on that? Uh, <laughs> this is a funny one because you can't literally answer this question fast or I can't and also think of who I'm ranking ahead of her. I just looked up what I suspect hidden game of tennis Jeff was, which is where she ranks in weeks at number one. And she is ninth and, you know, Halep could still pass her and, and maybe some other active players who are, who are behind her could pass her. You know, I think you'd have to sort of combine. For, I would combine that with slams and come up with something. So probably around 12th or 15th. I, I think that being able to, to, to lead the tour for as long as she did, even if it was a week period counts a lot for me. Uh, on the other hand, it's not like she was constantly making slam finals and losing to Serena in them. She only had a few chances. So I, I have so much trouble with the WTA on, on these questions of how to balance slams versus other tournaments because so many of the biggest WTA tournaments away from slams have similar fields and difficulty of winning and she won a whole lot of them um, and yet often that was with Serena Williams not playing them so that all adds up to me somewhere around 12 to 15 but I, I would need to think about it more to come up with something more specific can I throw out a couple of names uh, that I want to see how you think she compares? Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, and before you do that, Jeff, like, I, I, I'm glad, Carl, you mentioned the the weeks at number one because that's where I got my my sort of top ten trolling. Is I have a really hard time believing she's top ten of the open era, but on the other hand, like you have that number. I mean, being number one is a really meaningful thing. Not very many players have sustained their time at number one like she did. So. There is an argument, however mediocre, that she is top 10. And I was thinking more like Carl was that you wouldn't adjust that too far down. You'd adjust, you'd adjust it down, but not not to 28. So, so Jeff, I'm curious, A, um, how you go down as far as the low 20s. And I also want to want to hear your other names. Okay. Well, I'm not going to read the other 27. But no, please, please don't. Here, <laughs> here's some names that are... Uh, 
around uh, the list that I made, and someone who I think probably will, will be retiring fairly soon, where would you see Wozniacki in comparison to Kuznetsova? I mean, personally, I think Wozniacki is the better player. Just a lot more consistency. I mean, Kuznetsova never reached number one. So it, basically, Kuznetsova just has one more slam, right? Uh, one more slam. They had the same number of uh, same number of slam finals. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, what about uh, Li Na or Na Li? I think the answer is pretty much the same, isn't it? I mean, better performance at slams from Li Na, but was never number one, right? Yeah, and I, I would put Wozniacki ahead of, of Li Na also, who, who, by the way, only won uh, six uh, titles or seven titles, I think, outside of those, those two slams. Uh, what about Kerber? Carl, I'll let you take this one. Yeah, uh, well, so, you know, Kerber is, is a work in progress. Her career is a work in progress, so... Uh, if she retired the same moment as Wozniacki, it would be very close for me um, because she did actually stay at number one for a decent amount of time and she has the additional slam title. I think I'd put Kerber ahead, but they'd be right around the same spot on the list. And I would, my gut goes in the other direction, but I'm not sure I trust it. I mean, this is a topic for another podcast episode someday, but. It feels like if a player has their peak early in their career and then sticks around for a long time at a reasonably high level, we consider them to be better than if they're a solid player for a long time and then have a late career peak. Um, and it feels like Wozniacki and Kerber are pretty close to perfect examples of, of those two extremes. And maybe that's why I'm leaning Wozniacki, even if the numbers don't back it up. All right, last one, Azarenka. Definitely Azarenka. Carl, you, you're with me there, right? Anybody? Carl? Azarenka? Definitely, definitely Azarenka. I just needed a dramatic pause before saying the obvious. Okay, well, <laughs> and dramatic I, I it was. Wanna, I, I just want to point out that, that Azarenka, she has two slams and two slam finals that she didn't win. So that's just one more slam, right? She's only got, uh, well, well, I guess she has a lot of uh, premier titles she has three maybe three more premier titles but she has about 15 fewer regular titles uh how long has she been what was her do you have a does anybody have the list of number one 51 weeks at number one to 71 for wozniacki yeah so i i understand why you picked azarenka but uh numbers wise it's, it's not a huge difference there or if there is a huge difference, it may be actually in favor of Wozniacki. I actually have Azarenka ahead, too, but only by two or three places. But, but I mean, we've named Azarenka, Kerber, uh, as possibly being ahead. We haven't uh, touched on any of the other players. Oh, your question about top ten was in the open era. Uh, so that's why she she quickly starts to fall behind. I've only got Azarenka at about 25 uh, in the open era. Well, I think I might... I might give more credence to peak value than than what you're thinking. And 
the the last year or so, maybe two years of, of women's tennis have sort of redefined what's good enough for number one or not even top three in terms of, of ELO. We Right now, Ashley Barty has an ELO rating of 21.27. Her peak was at Wimbledon, and that was 21.85. So never crossed 2,200. Kuznetsova is basically the same peak, just below 2,200. Wozniacki had a peak of 22.35. That was almost 10 years ago. Azarenka had a peak of 23.10, and the only two active women above that are the Williams sisters, uh, Venus at 24.15 and Serena at 24.70. So without even looking at those numbers, I was going to say you have to give Azarenka the edge based on her peak. I mean, she was the one player who would go out there and at least always challenge Serena and occasionally beat her. if you're going to have a career where you only have a limited number of weeks at number one, you only have a couple slams, I think you'd rather see that concentrated in a shorter time than in a longer career like Wozniacki's where her accomplishments are more spread out. But I think the ELO really drives home the point of at least as a rank over a lot of these other players. Maybe maybe I underrated Wozniacki's peak a little bit, uh, but I think that's a big factor. I won't torture so, you with a bit of it then. Yeah, Jeff, one more. Any more thoughts there? I was, I was going to say, I'm not going to torture you with trying to figure out Kvitova then. <laughs> um, let's see. Kvitova's peak is actually only 21.44. So lower peak than Bianca Andreescu at this point. But yeah, Kvitova's tricky. I mean, this, is, this, this would be a difficult list to hash out, especially if we needed to spell out the top 28. Um, I, I promised that we'd have three hours of content here, and I think we could spend a, another two hours just hashing out the order of the women's open era top 28. So you guys up for it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't think ever. of a better way to do it than in a three-way audio conversation. On the spot. Yeah, I mean, that, that's how all the best decisions are made. It feels like a good a good note to end on. Um, obviously, we're still working out a few of the kinks here in in having a, a three person podcast conversation, but I think it it went pretty well for our first try. So thanks both to Carl and Jeff for the suggestion for making this happen and the willingness to to try it out with virtually no rehearsal or I mean very little practice even talking to other humans about tennis. Um, so listeners, everyone, thank you for joining us. Carl is the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast. Be sure to check out his podcast out as well. Um, Jeff is in charge of hiddengameoftennis.com where you can find a lot of his analysis and recently a look at some of these second screen stats that we're talking about. And we didn't get to dig too much into the stuff I've been writing lately, but lots of new material at Tennis Abstract and the Heavy Topspin blog there. So tennisabstract.com at Tennis Abstract on Twitter. You all know the drill if you've been with us for 65 minutes this week. So again, thank you, Jeff and Carl, for joining me this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Enjoy the rest of the ATP Cup, and we'll see you again soon.